Welcome to the newest RevDem podcast. My name is Ferenc Lotso, and I'll be your host today. It is my pleasure to welcome Federico Finchelstein to our series. Professor Finchelstein has published seven widely discussed books in English as well as Spanish on subjects such as populism and fascism, the dirty war in Argentina, Jewish history, and the history of the Holocaust. He is professor of history at the New School for Social Research in New York City, where he also acts as the director of the program in Latin American studies. His two most recent books are From Fascism to Populism in History and A Brief History of Fascist Lies, both of which have been widely translated by now. Since Revdam is based in Budapest, I am happy to mention that the latter work is also available in Hungarian. We shall be focusing on some key themes and questions in Professor Finchelstein's recent books during our conversation today. Welcome to the Revdam podcast, Federico. Oh, my I'm excited to have. Here. I'm excited uh, to have the chance uh, to talk to you uh, today. Uh, let me perhaps begin with a general question regarding your conceptualization of fascism and populism. First of all, how would you distinguish between these two phenomena? And could you perhaps also, also tell us a bit about how you view the historical connections between them? Yes, uh, uh, well, fascism and populism are part and actually are different chapters of the same history. And this is the history, uh, it's a, a specific history of authoritarianism, which starts with uh, what uh, historian Seb Sternhel called uh, the, this kind of um, reaction against the Enlightenment, but a reaction that eventually uh, wants to incorporate uh, dimensions of popular politics into what had been before a reactionary critique. So with the passing of the years and of the centuries, we finally reach uh, a kind of view of mass politics, which is also uh, which also rejects the egalitarian dimensions of, 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 of mass politics. Um, then, I mean, the, we should differentiate between these two phenomena because populism is a form of, uh, of mass politics uh, within democracy that generally is against uh, basic tenets of uh, liberal democracy, but not of democracy itself. As pop and populism, in fact, has been a form of opposition uh, beginning in the late 19th century and early 20th century. And in fact, earlier populists, uh, uh, such as, for example, the case of Karl Lueger in Vienna, were uh, uh, sources of inspiration uh, for uh, fascists. Now, fascism, in a way, is a, is a subsequent chapter in the history of, uh, let's say, people that do not like uh, the most egalitarian dimensions, enlightenment dimensions of democracy, and yet they are confronted or, or they are facing the fact that they need to, in order to be successful in politics, they need to engage in, in this mass politics. So even to the extent that they like all empires and even all monarchies, the idea is not, I mean, for example, in the most famous case of the Nazis, not to go back to the Second Reich, but rather to create a Third Reich, which will be different. 
Um, and in that sense, they eventually uh, will destroy democracy from within in order to, uh, to create a, a, a totalitarian dictatorship. And this is, I think, uh, a, key, a key element in the definition of what fascism is, that not every dictatorship is a fascist per se, but there is no fascism without dictatorship. So this is a key element. I mean, I, in my book, I, uh, in my book from fascism to populism in history, I present a lot of elements on, on each, but uh, I mean, to the audience of the podcast, like instead of repeating these arguments or even um, going by one by one, let me choose four elements which are central to the distinctions between what is fascism and what is populism. And this is part of a history. When the fascists finally are defeated uh, in 1945, there are different people that have been dictators and fascists that somehow realized that fascism, I mean, and its dictatorial ways have been, uh, uh, have become toxic for politics. And these people eventually uh, will do the opposite of what the fascists did. So uh, the most famous cases are those of Juan Perón in Argentina and Getulio Vargas in Brazil. I mean, these are former dictators and, and, and even fascists that decide to do the opposite of what the fascists did. If the fascists destroy uh, democracy from within in order to create a dictatorship, uh, these politicians will destroy dictatorship from within in order to create uh, a democracy. And the outcome of that is populism in power, or what I call modern populism in the sense that, you know, it is, uh, it is uh, not only a movement of opposition, but, but it's an ism that has become uh, you know, a form of power, as in the case of fascism, or even in the case of liberal revolutions. I mean, it is important to distinguish between the moment of critique and the moment when these forms finally reach power. In the case of fascism, it has been central. To, uh, you know, for, to, to the spread of fascism that, that in the first case of Italy, it became a regime or it reached power. So the same happened in, uh, in, in, in different countries in Latin America. And if you want, we can go back later to why Latin America first. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, but here, I mean, going back to your question, I would like to say that these populists, these early populists reject, they even leave behind four key elements of fascism. I mean, and in a way, this is a way to answer what is fascism. So I already anticipated one, that there is no fascism without dictatorship. Dictatorship is central and, a, and not actually a light dictatorship, but a totalitarian one. This is central to fascism, element number one, left behind by the populists. They create electoral democracies. Element number two is uh, the, the issue of violence and uh, the militarization of politics. Politics as a total war, politics as, uh, you know, as involving total enemies, absolute enemies, mm -hmm. uh, and enemies that shall be dealt with, uh, with violence. So this element, uh, this idea that politics is a war, this idea of politics being, in a way, being driven even by, the, by paramilitary formations and and physical punishment and violence on the street, first internally, and in the cases of fascism later, externally, first as a sort of civil war and repression, then total war on the outside, external war. Um, 
this is left behind. So populists will not be that violent. They will be violent perhaps in rhetorical terms, in terms of speech, but actually the levels of violence and repression were not really high in populist uh, regimes, as opposed, of course, or in sharp contrast with the fascist regimes. So element number two, violence, glorification of violence, militarization of politics left behind. That has been central of fascism. I mean, there is no fascism without that element. Uh, uh, with, I mean, I will, I'm saying one element, but in fact, we are talking about two, two dimensions, mm -hmm. right? Not only violence, but the idea that politics is a military matter, the militarization of politics, which leads to forms of repression, which are not very democratic, to say the least. And they are, that's why they are typically fascist. Um, so element number two. Element number three is a, a, a way of lying, a totalitarian fascist way of lying, which is totally different to other forms of uh, lying in politics. And as Hannah Arendt said, uh, and I certainly agree, uh, pop, uh, politics and lying are, have been together for, long, for a long time. We can go back to the Greeks even uh, for that. And yet fascists lie in a very different way. We can talk later if you want about this, but, uh, but this idea of lying in a way that is both in qualitative and, and, and quantitative terms different to other political traditions, this is left behind by the populists who actually lie like liberal, communists, or other types of politicians. So they go back and they reject this uh, total way of lying uh, in numbers and quality by the fascists, and they go back to a tradition of lying in politics, which at some point will not pretend as the fascists wanted to, uh, to change reality in order for this reality to be according to the lies and not to uh, observation. Uh, so number three element of fascism, which is left behind, this kind of absolute way of lying, a fascist way of lying. Um, and finally, finally, number four, and that's why, again, like these are four key elements of fascism, not all of the, the elements in fascism, of course, but four key elements of fascism, uh, which is, uh, so let's go back again, just to repeat the elements. Number one, uh, the, I mean, we were talking about uh, violence, we were talking about lies, we were talking about number one, which was dictatorship. So dictatorship, mm -hmm. violence, lies. And the fourth mm -hmm. element, which also populists will reject or even left behind, mm -hmm. is um, the element of the politics of hatred, the politics of xenophobia, mm -hmm. to put it even more specifically, uh, ra racism. Mm -hmm. So there is no fascism without racism. There is a misconception of about fascism that certain uh, fascisms were not racist, and this is historically wrong. I mean, the question is who was the enemy? I mean, for Peruvian fascists, for example, the enemies will be immigrants from uh, China and Japan. I mean, for Brazilian fascists, Brazilian fascists will say that uh, basically what made Brazil better than other nations is that Brazil combined a combination of races. I mean, the, the, the European white races, a, a, a black African races and, and indigenous races from Brazil. So this was the conception of fascism that Brazilians had. And yet in these conceptions, the Jews had no place in Brazilian society. So they, their racism was anti-Semitic, mm -hmm. as opposed to, for example, the emphasis, the anti-Asian anti, anti racism of the Peruvians, and so on and so forth. You will see forms of, you know, uh, raci racism in Italy 
uh, which are initially were different to, than the, the forms of racism in countries like Hungary or, or, or Germany. And then again, like you will have different variations, different uh, mutual, um, mutual uh, uh, reformulations, appropriations, and so on. And yet fascism always participated and actually put at the center of the picture the uh, politics of hatred uh, based on racism, the politics of xenophobia. An, early, an earlier populist will leave behind this key element of the fascist tradition. So they leave behind uh, racism, violence, dictatorship, and, and total lies. And that basically explains the main differences between, uh, let's say, historical populists and fascists. And yet, what is going on now, because I, I'm sure many people in the audience were wondering, well, mm -hmm. yeah, these populists left behind all that, but people like Trump or, or Orban or many others, they kind of incorporated these elements. Mm -hmm. And this is my point. And this is my point in my research, that we are witnessing a kind of going back, a return from populism to fascism. So if the history that I told in my book, uh, from mm -hmm. fascism to populism is exactly the opposite history. In the recent years, as I, I have already, note, already noted that in, in that book, mm -hmm. is that populists are, are making their democratic ways returning to the ways of fascism. Mm -hmm. Right, that's certainly something we would like to uh, address uh, in greater detail uh, later. But let me first ask you a question about uh, Latin America and the way you see uh, the place and the role of Latin America in the global history of fascism and populism, right? You are, of course, a well-recognized expert on Latin American uh, history. And I was wondering, what are your views on how such a stronger focus uh, on Latin American experiences, such as that of uh, Argentina or Brazil or other countries, could actually change uh, the mainstream Western understanding uh, of this history? Yes, I mean, I think it is important uh, to study, uh, you know, not only the so-called center, but also the margins or, let's say, places which are described or perceived uh, or sometimes behave and are part of the geopolitical margins. Because you will probably, I mean, if you work on Latin America or if you work on, on um, let's say, uh, or, or on Zimbabwe, or if you work on, uh, even, even if you work on uh, Japan or Hungary, you will see that you know much more uh, about works in the, you know, from the center, and they totally ignore what's going on on the margins. So basically, there is an imbalance, uh, which actually doesn't work in the benefit of this of these uh, people that only work on, let's say, the United States and and uh, and the West of Europe. And by the West of Europe, I don't mean like the West of Europe, but a couple of countries, because in the same way that the historical experiences of a country like Hungary, or Argentina, or Zimbabwe ignore, also the same also happens to Spain, Portugal, and Italy. So basically, what we are here, what we have witnessed in the in the in histories of of populism or approaches to populism is that, for example, the idea is that the main studies are on the Netherlands, on, on Germany, Scandinavia, and, uh, and perhaps uh, the US. And, and then there are models which are created while ignoring important interconnections, but also key dimensions of those histories. And, and you know, when I was referring to the fact that 
that it's important to study an ideology, a movement, and a practice, not only in opposition, but also in power, is that then you need to study cases in which this has been the case. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, the study of Orban, I think mm -hmm. it's more important than the study, let's say, uh, that only studying populist movements in oppositions in Denmark or Germany. Mm -hmm. Because then you see also only half of the glass, <laughs> the glass <laughs> half empty, which is, if you want to see the entire how populism operates, and what is going on with populism, then you need to study cases in which populism is in power. And that has, had, historically, that was the case of Latin America. So my point is that there, we might understand better how populism works if we focus also on experiences where populism has not only been in opposition, but also in power. I mean, this is not necessarily great. I mean, if you, let's say, if you are interested in the development of democracy and democratic values, that is not necessarily great if you are a citizen of Argentina, Brazil, or Hungary. But it is key to understand populism, I mean, to focus on these countries. Um, now, in the case of Latino, and this is one of the arguments in my book that is studying, I mean, I talk about the global south, but also we should talk about the margins. Mm -hmm. Because again, as I was saying, mm -hmm. if you work on uh, the Czech Republic, you are aware of what's going on you know, in countries which are generally most studies, studied, like the US or, 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 or Germany, but it, the same doesn't happen when these uh, experts study their own cases. So they are, I mean, let me be crude now. They are sometimes extremely ethnocentric, uh, Eurocentric, but perhaps even ethnocentric or Western-centric in a way. And, and they somehow conclude that things are in a way because it's, that's the case in France, the US or Germany. Or Denmark, uh, and uh, and I think this is uh, eventually becomes very myopic. Mm -hmm. And when when what is interesting is that when faced with this criticism, they often say, "Well, because France is not like Hungary, because Germany is not like Brazil." But that I mean, my, my own my my problem with that kind of argument is that it doesn't provide an explanation of why these cases are different, and it starts with a sort of prejudice about the the, the supposed uh, you know, underdevelopment or, or whatever goes on uh, with, these, uh, with these other countries. And sometimes it actually adopts prejudice as a sense of, well, these are authoritarian societies, that these are machistic societies, and so on and so forth. But without actually analyzing those societies and even reading people that work on those societies, that will tell you, well, it's much more complex than Latin America is a, is a kind of machismo situation, whereas Europe, uh, Western Europe is totally free of those problems. And actually, when you say, okay, then what about Berlusconi in Italy? Because that's really a big case of machismo. And they will say, well, that's Southern Europe is different. And I mean, it's all full of, I mean, I, I don't think it is full of analysis, but rather, I mean, often stereotypes or prejudice even. Mm -hmm. So my point is here is, is a, let's be more humble. Let's try to learn from each other. And let's try to have a more global view of what's going on with the, those that are standing against democracy. Because if you just say, this is typical of societies like Argentina or Hungary, then you don't get why the same problem is in your society. And I think this was especially the case with the United States mm -hmm. and why people were so perplexed, I mean, uh, about uh, uh, Trump and Trumpism. Mm -hmm. And they even wasted, wasted many years, I would say, thinking, okay, then Trump will become more presidential because the institution of the presidency will change him. Well, if you were studying fascism and populism, you knew that probably that wasn't likely. 
Why? Because yes, it is comparable to the experience with Orban in Hungary or Bolsonaro in Brazil or previous experience. Mm -hmm. Now, going back to the historical dimension of your question, I will say this. Why Latin America was the first place when, uh, where historically uh, you had this kind of reformulation of a dictatorial experience of, of the experience of fascism in a democratic key, because populism is an authoritarian form of democracy, which combines, it's a hybrid. I mean, fascism is no hybrid, it's a form of dictatorship, whereas populism combines democracy and dictatorship, uh, meaning it's an authoritarian anti-liberal democracy, or as Orban would call it, like a illiberal democracy. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and basically what happened in that, I mean, in that situation is that I mean, let me go by different, different sections of the world, let's say. Well, in most of Eastern Europe or Central Europe, uh, that kind of reformulation of fascism in a democratic key was not possible. What, what you had there is where communist dictatorships and populism cannot thrive in a dictatorship. Mm -hmm. That applied to big chunks of the world, like including Asia and Africa, where you had dictatorships and then you couldn't have this kind of authoritarian reformulation of democracy because there was no democracy to destroy or downgrade or, or you know, uh, or minimize in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, in the Western Europe, and for different reasons in the US, I think the fascist brand was extremely toxic. Mm -hmm. Even to the extent that in countries like Germany, Italy, or France, uh, the constitutions were very explicit about being anti-fascist to some mm -hmm. extent. Mm -hmm. So it's not that people didn't try that way, but it didn't work politically. Mm -hmm. So um, we will have to wait until the 80s in order for this neo-fascist slash, uh, uh, you know, um, neo-fascist solutions to, to have some appeal or to gain some appeal. And by the time that happens, for example, in Italy, they kind of leave, leave behind their neo-fascism to become post-fascist, that is to say populist. Mm -hmm. And I talk about that in the book. Mm -hmm. And even the same you could see in the switch from, let's say, uh, um, Le Pen the father to Le Pen the daughter. You have that kind of populist switch in which they say, we are no longer you know, into dictatorship, now we are into the... They become populist, but that happened in Latin America, let's say, four decades earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, and why then it happened later in Europe? Because, well, that anti-fascist legacy, that idea of democracy as being anti-racist and anti-fascist was eroded to, to some extent. And you see situations like Berlusconi in Italy and others, going into that situation. Um, so then in, in other parts of Asia and Africa, what you had at the time, let's say after fascism was defeated, um, was uh, either dictatorship, as I said, but perhaps even when you talk about situations in when you have like a, a single party situation, I mean, a one party state, then you cannot have a populist situation because that is, again, not really democratic. And as I said, even if you are hesitant to call that a dictatorship, I will not. But, but the point there is that if there are no democratic politics, you could not have this uh, post-fascist reformulation of democracy, which is populist. Mm -hmm. um, and then in Latin America was different because in Latin America, the fascist brand was not that toxic. Fascism had not been defeated in Latin America. And uh, then it was right for this situation. Mm -hmm. And this is not really like a, a kind of axiom, but rather a historical analysis. Why mm -hmm. populism emerged before in Latin America? Mm -hmm. Well, there were not anti-fascist constitutions. 
fascism had not been defeated, and there were democracies. So you have that kind of combination, mm -hmm. which later on you would have in Hungary, for example, mm -hmm. in which, uh, I mean, uh, and you know more about this than I know. I mean, and I, and I learned from you and other scholars that in Hungary, uh, what you have is a, a democracy without a strong anti-fascist uh, legacy or constitution, which has been appropriated and reformulated in a kind of very nationalistic, sometimes even xenophobic key by an illiberal leader. And, and in a way, Orban is in, a, in many ways like Perón, and yet he's different because as other populists, and this is what I said before, he's kind of returning to things that earlier populists would have rejected. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Let us perhaps turn to your uh, most recent book, a, a Brief History of Fascist Lies, uh, to discuss uh, its main uh, claims a bit. I was wondering, first of all, you know, what uh, motivated you to write uh, this book in, in, in more recent years? Uh, and how do you view the uh, role of truth uh, and lies uh, in fascism? Or to uh, put it uh, differently, why should we take fascist lies uh, so seriously? Well, I mean, to start with the last point, because they have very serious and even little consequences. And when I was talking before about the difference between fascist lies and, and other types of political lies, again, as I said, like politics and lies generally go together. Most politicians are liars, but they are liars that don't believe in their own lies. And this is a key, key, uh, a key distinction. Whereas, uh, you know, I start the book with a couple of quotes uh, from Trump, from Hitler and Mussolini. I mean, Hitler and Mussolini say, uh, you know, we are at the side of the truth, uh, we are with the truth and the truth will prevail. And of course, these are racist fascist liars that say that, which begs the question of what kind of truth are they talking about? What do they understand as the, as the truth? And then there is this quote from Trump that says to his followers famously, or rather infamously, he told his followers, don't believe in what you are seeing. So how is that possible not to believe in what your eyes are witnessing or experiencing and what you are seeing? And, and this is exactly at the center of the fascist notion of the truth, which is not necessarily, I mean, actually, and the, I mean, what is interesting, I mean, is the fascists themselves explain this. And this is what I do in the book. I approach, you know, different fascists from all over the world and they try to explain what they understand as the truth. And what they understand as the truth for most of us will be lies, meaning things that cannot be demonstrated and actually, or even things that are empirically demonstrated to be the opposite. Meaning that the leader is always right or the leader knows best that what, you know, than everybody else, what is good for the nation. Um, that truth is a matter not of empirical demonstration, but rather a matter of faith in the world, in the world of the leader. That truth is at the service of ideology, that truth is at the service of um, uh, uh, the cult of the leader. And, and in a way, for example, an, a fascist, an Argentine fascist, Leopoldo Lugones said, it's not that we don't, we don't believe in empirical truth, but we believe in a truth that goes beyond empirical, empirical truth because it's, a, it's an absolute truth. As I said, it's the truth of faith. So when things that the fascist ideology says should be one way, uh, are not that way, then the problem is with empirical observation, not with, you know, faith in what it should be. Now, let me be concrete, mm -hmm. uh, or more concrete, and, ex and, and, mm -hmm. and, uh, and explain, uh, give you an example, one of the perhaps most horrible examples of, of this idea 
of the truth, which in fact, as I said, like their idea of the truth is for the rest of us alive, meaning things that actually are not demonstrated, actually reality is different to them. And, you know, these are, uh, these are, for example, if we take this idea, this Nazi lie, this Nazi racist lie, that Jews are uh, in inherently, essentially dirty and spread disease. I mean, that's a lie. That cannot be empirically demonstrated. Now, uh, let's say a non-fascist person, just to be polemic, let me say a normal person, will say, uh, well, that if that is cannot be demonstrated, it, it, it is not. It cannot be. It is not true. Uh, whereas a fascist, basically, what they will do with that? Well, what they did is they created uh, ghettos uh, uh, and concentration camps, and they put Jews from all over Europe in those places. And in those places with horrible sanitary conditions and horrible, you know, and without food and, 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 you know, in a gruesome situation, these were laboratories where what was a lie could become the truth. In the sense that these people, these Jewish people that were put in these situations, they became dirty, and yes, they started spreading disease. But only because the Nazis had created a reality, a new reality, in order for the lies to become the truth. Mm -hmm. So you see here one of the most horrible examples of this. And of course, mm -hmm. because they were like that, according to this new reality, which in mm -hmm. fact was a manufactured reality, mm -hmm. uh, they were killed. So you see, basically, they were not like that. It was not true. And because it wasn't true, they created situations, very artificial mm -hmm. situations, in which mm -hmm. they were turned into living mm -hmm. examples of the truth of ideology, which in fact is not a truth, but rather an, an ideological imperative. And they were turned from, you know, from uh, people that were healthy into people that were very uh, unhealthy. Mm -hmm. And the Nazis would say, you see, this is what we say. Mm -hmm. These people are like that. They are not, well, in fact, they are not like that. They were turned into that in order to prove the lie. So, can, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, okay. Again, your book also explores the uh, relationship between fascism and psychoanalysis, right? A, a topic that you've devoted quite some attention to uh, also in your previous uh, work. And I was wondering whether you would mind speaking uh, to the role of the unconscious uh, in fascism uh, and how these ideas regarding the unconscious relate to the, to the Freudian uh, ones. Well, uh, they don't, and that is the problem. Because I mean, the idea is, I mean, I was wondering why so many fascists were so concerned about psychoanalysis. I mean, what was the problem that, that they found in the psychoanalysis? I mean, which of course they often explain in racist terms. And the idea is that for them, I mean, whereas psychoanalysis presented an idea of the unconscious, which was quite complicated. And in a way, uh, you know, to simplify the idea is that whatever a violent drive or destructive drive that emerges out of the unconscious needs to be, Freud would say, needs to be mediated, even repressed through uh, language and culture in order for people to be peaceful, in order for people to be, you know, to, to be stable and to have, uh, you know, and, and I will say even to be democratic. Mm -hmm. uh, so for Freud, for Freud, the unconscious could be the source of a lot of violence and a lot of bad things that needed to be mediated through reason. I mean, in a way, the individual that says, 
okay, this is not a good idea. This is not an ethical idea. Even if if I feel the, the urge to be violent, then that is not necessarily good. And in fascism, it was the opposite. The idea is that everything that emerged emerge from the unconscious, I mean, what they call, I mean, sometimes they will talk about the unconscious, sometimes they will talk about instincts, sometimes they will talk about um, uh, the soul, or, or whatever emerged from the inside, whatever urge, uh, I mean, and particularly urges of violence and destruction, according to the fascists, these things were good and they will be tainted by reason. So this is a, obviously an attack against thought and reason. The idea is that reason and the idea that, uh, that it's important to be, uh, to moderate mm -hmm. instinctual forces, fascism sees as a problem. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the point then is that, and actually going back to the, the earlier point, they will identify everything that emerges from the inner workings of the soul as they will conceive this as the truth. And that is ideological truth. That is the truth that should prevail. Meaning, I mean, this is a, you know, of course, this is an extremely uh, uh, Hobbesian view in a way, if you will. Like the idea is that, you know, everything that emerges from the inside should not be moderated, but rather expanded. And, and uh, so, and so this, this is, I mean, uh, so they saw, uh, they saw the unconscious as being the source of legitimate political urges. They also saw another problem with, um, with, uh, with psychoanalysis because they saw not, nothing, I mean, this is another point, they saw not, nothing sexual in these urges and desires. And, uh, because for them, like it was totally respectable. It was part of a, let's say, of, of a form of respectability that could not be mediated by too much thinking. This was mm -hmm. the problem. So my point is that you should, they say, they said you should connect to the leader through, um, through affect and through aesthetic notions rather than mm -hmm. thinking about it. And this is something, by the way, that Walter Benjamin also observed and many other thinkers. The idea that this is about the polity of a spectacle and you should not uh, follow uh, fascism because of a program which was not there, but rather because you felt this irrational connection with the leader. And of course, people like Freud and later Adorno, Horkheimer and many others thought that this was extremely dangerous and it, it could be the source of a lot of violence. And actually it was the source of fascist ideas of truth, which were in fact lies. Uh, so yeah, so that's that's one of the connections. Let me ask you a slightly uh, different question. You, of course, already alluded to the whole discussion about uh, Trump, uh, Bolsonaro, uh, Modi, Orban, uh, these uh, politicians, and you uh, explained that in a certain sense they are also reviving parts of the fascist tradition. Uh, you know, moving sort of closer uh, to to the fascist original in a way back from populism, uh, if you wish. Uh, would you mind speaking to how you relate uh, to the fascism debate uh, that has been ongoing uh, in the US now that uh, Trump is actually uh, out of office? How does that change the situation uh, in your view? Well, I mean, there is, I mean, it is clear that when you see a politician like Trump, for example, that starts his campaign with what, you know, German social democrats many, many years ago called the socialism of the imbeciles. 
meaning the politics of hatred, meaning that he started his campaign by blaming Mexicans, uh, which means in the context of the US actually Latinos or Hispanics as, as a whole of being rapists. I mean, the, he started the campaign with a racist statement and putting in a way, presenting these, these new policies of xenophobia in a way that many people saw, I think, and rightly so, echoes of fascist ideas. So when you have a politician that, that presents xenophobia, I mean, let's go back to these four elements that we were talking about before. When you see a politician that presents xenophobia, that lies both in quantity and in quality in ways that actually are not typical ways of lying in politics, but rather fascist ways, a politician that glorifies violence, engages in repression very actively, and also even promotes the militarization of politics through the formation or the assertion or the legitimation of militias, neo-Nazis, and other groups like that, men with guns, uh, then it will be, uh, I think, um, legitimate to ask a question, how connected to fascism this is. And my own take, I mean, I think that it's sometimes in the US, this, this important dimension, let's say, of how this connects to fascism has been uh, presented in a very silly uh, and simplified way, which is, is it this or that? And it's not really whether, I mean, the, the interesting question is not where Trump is a fascist or not, but where, where, whether there is a risk of fascism in his politics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, if you take out uh, the important events of January 6th, then what you see before that is that of the four elements, only three were in place, racism, violence, militarization of politics and lies. And it was, I mean, and Trumpism was lacking a key element of fascism, which was dictatorship. But what you see, what you saw in January 6th is an attempt at a coup d'etat, meaning how can you define the rule of a president that either has not been elected, reelected or is in power without or against even the result of elections. So that will be a dictator. Had he won, he would have become a dictator. And in that thing, in that, in that sense, it would have been very fair to, 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 to really wonder and even think or, or, of him as a fascist. But I always call him a, a wannabe fascist, meaning a fasc, a, an authoritarian leader that would like to be a dictator and sometimes, you know, all, also because this is not a, an empty place of politics, and there are a lot of forces against these authoritarian, uh, authoritarian leanings in the US, in Brazil, in Hungary, and in many other places, uh, and they cannot do what they, what, what they would like to. Mm -hmm. So what, we, what is interesting is that, uh, you know, uh, in the case of Hungary, for example, mm -hmm. we see the perspective of the formation. I mean, already, is, I mean, you know more about this than I know, but of a kind of anti-Orban front. If Orban is defeated, unlike Trump attempts to remain in power through uh, extrajudicial means, then we will switch from this very illiberal anti-democratic state that he has created into, a, into an actual dictatorship. And then it will be possible, I think, to, uh, to, to see how far he has he had, he had moved from populism to fascism. At, 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 you know, in most of these leaders, you see them as being at the threshold of what is populism and, and what is fascism, but they are not full-fledged fascists because they are not dictators. I mean, which will be a key element of fascism. 
Now, that's why I think that the, sometimes the US, the US debate is like, yes, this is a fascist, or yes, this is not a fascist. It's sort of uh, myopic in that sense. But these, these things, of course, are more complex than that. Um, Again, as a final question, I wanted to ask you, uh, again, in connection with your uh, recent book, which I read as a treatise on history and myth, and through that also on democracy and dictatorship. You know, we talked quite a bit about the role of lies and the role of myth in dictatorship. Uh, would, you, would you mind speaking a bit to the role of history uh, in democracy? Yes, I mean, this is a really, I mean, this, I, I thank you for the question because I, I think it's, you know, it's at the center of this way of, of authoritarian lying to, I mean, to have a problem with different actors. I mean, I will not, this is not what you asked me, so I will just mention it briefly, but you can see why they will have a problem with the free press or independent press, mm -hmm. because as opposed to government propaganda, what, you know, the independent press is provide empirical element for the population to have <laughs> to have an interpretation of reality mm -hmm. so that's why these authoritarians they always have problems with the with the free press because more free press more empirical analysis which runs against their lies and against their propaganda and yes they are myths mm -hmm. and the same happens with the work of historians with history mm -hmm. because i mean history mm -hmm. is supported by 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 facts basically what is history but the interpretation of facts Whereas in myth is the interpretation of fantasies and propaganda, political myth, but it's not related or necessarily doesn't rely on facts. So they always have a problem with an idea of the past, which is supported by fact, which is history. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, in the Trumpian case, when you see, you know, let's make uh, America great again. I mean, okay, so historians will ask, okay, what was great? What are you talking about and what was great about that America before civil rights that you are talking about? So you, so what was great supposedly, I mean, for these people is that minorities were, you know, incredibly repressed that, um, and in a way there was a, almost a situation of apartheid in the US. Even in that extent, I mean, I think it is very fair to compare US democracy to you know, to also other young demo democracies such as, for example, Spain. Because in fact, before the civil rights, you know, uh, reforms, uh, uh, what you had in the US was apartheid. And, and how can you call that extremely democratic when there are people that because of the color of their skin, they cannot fully vote. So my, my point is that this is what, you know, this is the, I mean, what, what the myth of the past that as, ena as enabled and, and reacted and reenacted by Trumpism provide, meaning an idea of uh, the US past, which is not, which doesn't correspond to the reality of that past. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's why people that are not into that saw it as a kind of racist myth of the nation, mm -hmm. which it was. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for talking to us today, Professor Finchelstein. Thank you for sharing all these valuable insights on these much contested questions about populism and fascism and also the historical connections, which again, in many ways have been underemphasized in recent discussions. And I think again, Professor Finchelstein's work provides a badly needed corrective in that sense. Thank you so much also for, for listening and till, till next time. Thank you. Thank you.